Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. There's people out there. I've sat up on this on my little, my little stool for 12 Sundays around just stared at that camera. I looked neither to the left nor to the right. Just stared at that camera. But I got people here today. I got people. So we went 12 Sundays where we gathered exclusively online. So it's been 13 weeks since we've any of this. But Perry and I were out of the country before the world went sideways. So it's been 15 weeks, Perry. It's a long time. Um, first of all, I want to say, I'll get to preaching. I just want to kind of talk to you a minute. First of all, I want to say that I think that our team did a great job during the craziness. I mean, just, just technically and the services and how they were put together. We haven't forgot you onlineers. I want to be real clear. I want to say not everybody should be here. I get that. So, I mean, we're, we're just totally cool with that. We get that. So we're not forgetting you. But I want to say that I really think they did a good job. I was so proud of them. And they worked hard. And one more time, give them, just, you know, let them know. Staff, volunteers. Um, but it's sure not the same, I'll tell you that much. So here we are in this, it's tricky, it's a tricky time. And here's what I'm gonna ask you, is that you give grace to everybody. Because everybody's, how many of you have ever been through a global pandemic before? That's what I thought. We don't have any practice for this. And so, you know, some will think that we're not being cautious enough. Some will think we're overdoing it. We're just trying. We're just, we're just trying. And I don't, I, will we get it right? I don't even know what right is. So let's give grace to one another. Let's love one another. Let's be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Amen? All right, so I, I've been, I've been sitting on this little stool. I put the stool away, I'm standing on my hind legs. It didn't make sense to stand, you know, because if I stand, I want to move, and it didn't make sense to do that when there was nobody here. But now I'm, I am, I'm ready to preach. It's kind of like I woke up and it was Christmas and Easter. And so my sermon today is entitled, Return of the Exiles. What else am I going to call it, Tyrese? I mean, that's the sermon title. It just named itself, didn't it? Psalm 126, when the Lord brought back the exiles to Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Go ahead and shout. Go ahead and shout. All right, amen. One of the most important stories in the history of Israel is the story of their exile. 
Israel's experience with exile informs so much of the Bible that it cannot be overemphasized. So during these 12 weeks, I've been thinking a lot about exile. Now I get it. 12 weeks of online services are not the same as 50 years in Babylon. I get that. But still, I've been thinking about what it is to be displaced, not at home, not where you want to be. So I thought today, as our first day back as some kind of exile, it would be a good day to retell the epic story of Israel's experience with exile. And then we'll see how the New Testament applies the experience of exile to the people of Jesus. Now, when we talk about the exile, everybody say the exile. When we talk about the exile, uh, we're talking about the Babylonian exile in the 6th century B.C. You're going to get some Bible lesson today. It'll be good for you. Uh, but the Bible has two previous stories of exile. The first one being the exile from Eden. When Adam and Eve are driven out east of Eden, the cherubim with their flaming swords prevent their return. That's an exile. That speaks to something's gone wrong and we're really not at home. And then there was another exile when the patriarch Jacob took his family of 70 into Egypt because there was a famine in their homeland and they ended up in a foreign land and didn't get out for 400 years. In one sense, the Bible is a big story of how we find our way back home. In some ways, that is the story that the Bible is telling. So let's jump into this big story. We're not going to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, I feel like preaching five hours, but you probably don't feel like hearing five hours of preaching. So we'll just back up a little bit. Let's go back, oh, let's say 3,000 years 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Christ, it was the year about 1,000 B.C. King David, after reigning for seven years as king in Hebron, established the capital of Israel in Jerusalem. About 40 years after he had moved the capital to Jerusalem, the city of peace. His son, King Solomon, built the temple. And now, for the first time, there is a temple, an established, fixed stone temple, a majestic temple, a glorious temple in Jerusalem to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jerusalem becomes known, it's known as Zion. That's the poetic that's the poetic way of speaking of Jerusalem as the habitation of God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great King. And for 400 years, 
For 400 years, um, about, there was, there was the temple. The temple of Yahweh, who had made covenant with the seed of Abraham, the Israelites. It was there for 400 years. But in the 7th century B.C., a thousand miles east of Jerusalem, an empire was on the rise. It was called Babylon. And their king, Nebuchadnezzar, he was ambitious. He said, uh, I got Babylon, but I want it all. And he began gobbling up all that was around him. Eventually, he'd reached a thousand miles west and annexed Jerusalem. Babylon was a mighty empire. Israel's just a, a little state, a little kingdom. They cannot resist the mighty power of, of Babylon. And so now, um, in the year 605, King Nebuchadnezzar asserted his will upon Jerusalem, and it was annexed. And the first thing he did was deport the king, King Jehoiakim. Not to be confused with Jehoiakim. I know there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. King of Judah, King Jehoiakim, and many of the royal elite, many of the upper echelon, in the year 605 were deported, taken a thousand miles away to Babylon. Among them was a young man named Daniel. And three of his friends whose Chaldean names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They ended up, because they were highly educated, serving in prominent positions in the Babylonian government. We'll get to them in a little bit. And so King Nebuchadnezzar established another king, King Zedekiah, puppet king, in place of Jehoiakim, who he had taken away to Babylon. Things continued on like that for a little while until after 12 years or so of that, Jeho uh, King Zedekiah rebelled. He says, no, 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 no. We're the people of God. And God's on our side. And we're going to fight for our freedom. And they got crushed. Nebuchadnezzar, oh yeah. And so they invaded. And in 586, they set siege to the city that lasted a year, resulted in Lots of death and starvation and horrors. And in 587, the city was destroyed. The temple was burned to the ground. And the survivors, all of them except a handful of the very poorest of the very, very poor, were forced into exile in Babylon. Think about how terrible that experience was. Try to imagine the utter despair and disorientation of these Jewish exiles. Their home is gone. Zion is lost. The temple is no more. Jerusalem is months journey away. Months worth of walking away. They arrive now in a new land with the only thing they have is what they can carry. They now occupy the very bottom strata of society. They are despised foreigners. They don't speak the language. They don't understand what's going on. 
They're completely disoriented. They can't make sense theologically of what's happened. It takes all of their energy just to survive. I think of Syrian refugees that are going through something very similar to that. Through no fault of their own, they're just thrown to the the fates. Now they've got to try to find a place to live and somehow to live. This is what happens to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. Worst of all, it seems that their God has abandoned them. And they're in this foreign pagan land surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of pagan temples filled with hundreds and hundreds of pagan idols, false gods. So what do you do? Well, I mean, you do what probably most people do in situations like that. At first, you deny it. There was about 40,000 of these exiles had been deported, that had survived the siege and the destruction and are now homeless, vagabonds living in a foreign land. They grouped together, they huddled together because that's their friends, that's their family, that's their neighbors, that's the people that speak the language that they speak, they worship the same God. And they begin to, they're just in the process of denial. And they say, well, you know, it won't last that long. A few weeks, maybe a month or two, at most a year, and then we'll be able to go home. Nebuchadnezzar will say, all right, all right, you learned your lesson. Now you can go home. Go back and be some good Jews and it'll cause me any trouble. You can go home. That's what they're saying. And there were, there were false prophets that rose up prophesying false hope. I don't think of these false prophets as, as evil deceivers. I think of them as just desperate people trying to hold, grasping at straws. And they were prophesying that, that they were going to go home soon, but they're offering false hope. And that's when Jeremiah, the great prophet of Israel, writes a letter. He writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon. He said, well, folks, I got some bad news. Uh, I can't offer you false hope. And those that are saying that you're going to go home soon are doing just that. In fact, you're going to be here for like, it's going to be a few generations. So here's what you got to do. You got to get on with your life. You got to make your home in Babylon. I know it's not home, but you got to make the best of it. Don't decrease in numbers. You need to get married, raise family, have kids, do all of that. And uh, build houses, settle in, get jobs, Learn to live in Babylon because that's where you're going to be. And by the way, you might as well just seek the well-being, the welfare of Babylon where God has caused you to dwell. Because, you know, in its welfare, you'll have welfare. So you're going to be here for a few generations. Make the best of it. And so they begin to do that. I mean, eventually it becomes clear we're not going home anytime soon. But then another danger arises in that You know, as kids are born and other generations come along, I mean, you have these kids that are born in Babylon. They hear stories from mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, about this mythical land far away, a place called Zion. They've never been there. And so now the danger is there'll be too much assimilation. They'll be too good at making their home in Babylon. That assimilation will become compromise, and compromise will become apostasy and idolatry, and they'll lose their covenant identity as the people of God. That's the great danger. That's what the book of Daniel is about. 
It's about how to navigate the third way between violent revolution that doesn't work, because that was their first plan. Well, we'll just, we'll just fight the Babylonians, and God is on our side, and, and we'll win. And they didn't win. They lost. And they lost everything. So that doesn't work. And the other alternative is, well, we'll just you know, forget all of that. We'll just forget all of that, and we'll just become Babylonians. And this will now be our new lot. Now, the book of Daniel is how to navigate that. And so that first, that first wave of deportees had these three Jewish men. I can't ever remember their Jewish names or Hebrew names. When they got there, they changed their names to the ones that everybody knows, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And because they were from the royal elite in Judah and had education, they were valuable to the Babylonian government. And they were trained, and they got high positions in the government. That's nice. And they're willing, they're, they're not trying to subvert Babylon. They're not, they're not going to launch an insurgency. They're going to seek the welfare of Babylon like Jeremiah said. But they've got some standards. They've got some convictions. They're, they can only go so far. They're going to maintain their fidelity to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that when the Babylonian government says, oh, here's what we're going to do. We get, we're going to play the national anthem. And when we do, everybody's got to bow down to our big fancy gold statue. They said, whoa, we can't do that. We can help you administrate. We can help you govern. We can help uh, the flourishing and well-being of Babylon. But we can't bow down to an idol. When your nation becomes an idol, well, then, you know, you can't bow down to that. Because then you lose your covenant identity. And that made Nebuchadnezzar mad. He's a furious guy. And he says, heat it up seven times hotter. Seven times hotter. They're like, yeah, I don't know. It's about as hot as it can go. But let's just tell him it's seven times. Oh, it's seven times hotter now. Throw them in. You know the story. They throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. But the only thing that gets burns up is their bonds. And it turns out there's a fourth man in that fire. Who is that fourth man? <laughs> I go over Roberts right now. Who is that fourth man? You think I can do this? I haven't practiced. In Matthew, he's Messiah. In Mark, the wonder worker. In Luke, the son of man. In John, the son of God. In Acts, the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. In Romans, my justifier. In Corinthians, my sanctifier. In Galatians, he's the one that redeems me from the curse of the law. In Ephesians, he's the Christ of unsearchable riches. In Philippians, he's the one who supplies all of my needs. In Colossians, he's the, 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 in Colossians, he's the image of the invisible God. In Thessalonians, he's the soon coming king. In Timothy, he's my faithful uh, he's the mediator between God and man. I haven't practiced. In Titus, he's, he's my faithful pastor. In Philemon, he's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. In Hebrews, he's the blood of the everlasting covenant. In Peter, he's the great shepherd of the sheep. In First uh, John, he's love. In Second John, he's love. In Third John, he's love. In Jude, he's the Lord coming with ten thousands of his holy ones. In Revelations, he's king of kings and lord of lords, the alpha and the omega, the bright and shining star. All right, all right. If I had practiced that, I would have done it perfectly, but it just came in the moment. If I'm going to stand on my hind legs and preach, I might as well pull out some preacher tricks. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an appearance of the Word before the Word is made flesh within that fiery furnace with those that maintain their fidelity with God. Years later, there's a change in administration, and they passed the law that said, well, you know, we just want to make sure everybody's really, really, really committed to our, our little empire. And so for 30 days, nobody can pray to anybody but the king. 
And Daniel's an old man by now. He says, well, you know, that ain't going to happen. I have faithfully served this kingdom, and I will do so for its well-being and its flourishing, but I'm not about to become an idolater over the deal. And so he just made an ostentious display of opening up his windows and facing Jerusalem, getting out on his knees and lifting his hands and, and praying to God, and he got arrested, spent a night with the lions, but God was with him. You know that story. Amen. These are the kind of things that are going on during their exile. Well, in the year 539 B.C., 66 years after the first deportations, 48 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews are suddenly informed that they are permitted to go home. You can go home now. Lockdown's over. <laughs> you can go home now. But it's been, for some of them, it's been 66 years. For others, it's been 48 years. Many choose not to return. Many say, ah, this is our home now. But others did. And for those that did, it, it was like, oh, it's a dream come true. And that's, that's what the psalmist says. We were like those who dream. Um, and then Isaiah, Isaiah of the exile, is, is prophesying about this because he's so excited. And he says, oh, prepare the way. Man, we're going to have to have an interstate highway going straight through the desert to get these people back. And that's when he, he says things like, uh, he says things like, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places the places. We're just going to have a great, a great highway to get everybody back home. Uh, Isaiah also says, uh, you shall not go out in haste. He's telling the exiles, okay, you're getting to go home, but don't, don't, you don't have to run there. It isn't, it, isn't like, it isn't like, you know, you're fleeing for your life. It's not like when you left Egypt and, and Pharaoh was hot on your No, 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 just at your leisure. It's, those in business class may board at their leisure. And uh, you're just going to be able to just, just go back home. And then he gets really excited and he said, he said oh, he says, uh, he says uh, you shall go out in joy. Go out of Babylon in joy. And be led back, back home to Jerusalem in peace. The mountains and hills before you shall burst into song. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And so, so Isaiah has this vision of, of the exiles returning home. And the mountains and hills are watching. Their, and they're saying, oh, they're going home. They're going home. Yes, they're going home. They're, just, they're singing, right? That was singing. And, uh, and he says, the trees of the field start, oh, let's give them a standing ovation. The exiles are coming home. It's a beautiful, poetic picture. Amen. But the reality they found when they actually got home is a little different. Because they actually get back, and guess what? The city's in ruins. The orchards and vineyards have all been destroyed. Of course, the temple's gone. And so, they're happy to be back home, but... It's not paradise. And so they set upon the hard work of rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding their lives. Two years after they arrived back in Jerusalem, they laid the foundation for a new temple. They don't have any money to build it yet. You know how building programs are. They don't have any money to build it. But they said, well, at least we can, we can lay out the foundation. And so they laid out the foundation, and they had a ceremony, kind of, to, kind of a groundbreaking ceremony. And they laid the foundation, and, 
Ezra says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the people responded with a great shout. Woo, hallelujah. But many of the old people who had seen the first temple wept. All right, think this through. The final deportation with the destruction of the city occurred 48 years earlier. And now they've been back in the land for two years. So it's, 50, it's been 50 years. So if you were a Jew who in 587 was 20 years old, you would have vivid memories of the temple and worshiping there and, and all of that, the, the temple. But now it's 50 years later and you're 70. You've come back, you're back. The thing is, you, have the, you, you, remember, you remember the temple of Solomon in its glory and you're looking at this you say, it's, it's not quite big enough, and it's, uh, we don't, and, and you just know that what they're building can't compare to what you've lost. So they began to weep. The younger ones shouting for joy because they're looking toward the future. The older ones looking back and realizing what they lost. Their weeping is a very poignant sight. Well, the truth is, they were still in exile. Yes, they were back in the land, but they were still under pagan domination. First under the Babylonians, and then under the Persians, and then under the Greeks, really the Seleucids, and then eventually they're going to be under the Romans. And so you know what they're thinking, well, really when does exile end? When will our home, our, our kingdom truly come to us? Yeah, I know we're back in the land, but it's not really ours. We have to pay tribute to all these foreign overlords. When will our home, our kingdom, truly come to us? Well, this longing for their own king and own kingdom, this is the messianic aspiration. This is the hope for a Messiah who will be their king and bring the new kingdom. Mark chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came. Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. They've been waiting 500 years. 500 years they've been waiting. And this Jesus of Nazareth comes into Galilee and says, guess what? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, that means rethink everything. And believe the good news. So you, this is a big story I'm telling today. We started back in a, a thousand, I've covered a thousand years now. David, Solomon, destruction, exile, return, but it's not the same, still under foreign domination. How long? When will our real home come to us? When will our real king and kingdom come to us? A thousand years after David, 500 years after all of these woes, Jesus of Nazareth comes into Galilee and says, Hey, time's fulfilled. It's here. It's here. The kingdom that you've been waiting for is arriving right now. It's at hand. It's within grasp. Rethink everything. And believe the good news. 
What is the kingdom of God? It's God's alternative society. But it doesn't come by the way of violent revolution against Rome. No. Violent revolution against Babylon didn't work. It's not going to work against Rome. It's going to get the same result. Violence begets violence. It doesn't bring the peace and joy and human flourishing that you imagine it will. The myth of redemptive violence is a myth. I mean by that it's a lie. And so Jesus won't go that way. Jesus goes the way of the cross instead. And so how do we enter into this kingdom of God, this kingdom from the heavens that Jesus spoke of? By faith and by baptism and then by learning to live the Jesus way. Learning to embody, enact, inhabit, enact, live the Jesus way. And guess as we, as we do that, guess what? We start, we start being at home. Oh, I'm, I'm finding the peace. I'm finding the joy. I'm finding, oh, I think I'm home. I'm home. This is why, this is why so many of Jesus' parables were about homecomings and banquets and everybody welcomed at a party because Jesus is showing us how we can be at home, how we can end the exile and be at home with God our Father. All right, but now it gets tricky. We're about done, but hang in there. The apostle Peter, in his first letter, he's writing to these people that are in the uh, eastern provinces of what we would call western Turkey. It's part of the Roman Empire. A bunch of people up there have heard about Jesus and been baptized and belong to Jesus now. And he writes them a letter, and he addresses it to the exiles. And then he closes the letter by saying, she who is in Babylon greets you. What's going on here? Peter's writing from Rome, but he says, she who is, Babylon hasn't existed as a city for three centuries almost by the time Peter writes this letter. What's he saying? He's saying, look, Babylon isn't a place in history. It isn't a particular geography. It is empires of domination that operate through greed and violence, idolatry and injustice. That's Babylon wherever it is. Wherever it is. And he says, Rome is just the new Babylon. And you were once at home in Babylon, but now that you've met Jesus and you've been baptized and you belong to his kingdom, you're, you're at home with God. You're at home with the Father. You're at home with Jesus, but you're in exile in Babylon. And so you've got to learn to navigate those tricky waters. That yes, you're at home with God, you're at home with Jesus, you're at home with the kingdom, but now you're in exile in the land of your birth, in Babylon. The kingdoms of this world are all Babylon, especially the mighty superpowers built upon greed and violence, idolatry and injustice. We live in the United States of Babylon. Don't let that offend you, it's just the way it is. If it consoles you, you can say America's the best Babylon there's ever been. Fine, but it's still the Babylon. But in the midst of Babylon, there is a Zion. There is a new Jerusalem. There are those that have come to realize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus is the last best hope for the world. That Jesus is the one that can bring us home to the Father's house. In my Father's house, there's plenty of room for everybody, and I have prepared a place. Come on home. 
come on. But when you come home by Jesus to the Father's house, then the wider world of Babylon until the coming of Christ is not your home. And so you're exiles in the wider Babylon, but in places like this, in gatherings like this, in moments like this, we're at home. So I say to you, welcome home. Welcome home. This is a community of kindness and compassion. What we do here is we bear one another's burdens. The Apostle Paul called that the law of Christ. Yeah, he calls that, he says, this is the, he says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Nebuchadnezzar is acquire, take, use. The law of Christ is bear one another's burdens. So, how many of you here are going through a great struggle? How many of you here are going through a great struggle? Raise your hand. Let me see you. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's uh, financial. Maybe it's uh, anxiety. I mean, you're only living through a global pandemic, an economic crisis, the expose of systematic racial injustice in an empire. Why wouldn't you be going through a great struggle? Those of you that say, yeah, but I mean, I'm really going through a great struggle right now. Raise your hand. And if you don't mind, if you don't mind, just stand where you are. Just stand where you are. I want to pray for you. Just stand where you are. I want to pray for you, but I want everybody else to pray for you. Don't be ashamed. Don't Because at any given moment, any one of us will be standing. All right, so see these people that are standing, they're going through a great struggle. We're going to fulfill the law of Christ and bear their burden. Stretch out your hand towards somebody that's near you. <clears throat> oh, Lord, I pray for these people. Lord, we take upon our own shoulders, upon our own souls, some of the cares that they have. They don't have to bear it alone. We want to bear it with them. We want to love them when we do love them. We want to help them, show us how to help them. But at this moment in this church, we call upon you and we pray, Lord, rescue them, provide for them, lift them up, send them money, help people to send them money, help them get new jobs, help the anxiety to go away. Let there be a miracle of the joy of the Lord as their strength. Lord, help them to navigate this time because you are with them. Be a cloud by day and a fire by night to these people. Lead them in the right path. Give them peace that passes understanding. Peace that, that, that surpasses reason. It comes not to the mind, but it is, it's injected directly into the heart. I pray that the peace of God would be just injected into them right now. And that their troubled soul would, would have Jesus speaking these words, peace be still, and a great calm would come. Lord, let them know that they are loved. They are in a community of kindness and compassion. And I say, in the name of Jesus, everything's going to be all right. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, praise the Lord.